You're listening to Farm to Table. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Farm to Table, a farm and food systems podcast coming to you from Fayetteville, North Carolina. I'm your host, Dr. Sarah Tabor. Today, we've got an interview with Chris Higgins of Hort Americas. And in addition to being a major outpost of the general fruit and veggie farming world at Hort Americas, Chris has been doing a lot of heavy lifting in the indoor farm industry as the head of Urban Ag News, making sure that industry uh, information gets around and hopefully we can all make good choices. Just last week, he put on an event in the Research Triangle, bringing out some of the plant scientists who've been working on this stuff for a very long time in Japan. Uh, Very glad to be having those conversations now here in the South, uh, where it's so hot and humid that we can't grow a lot of crops, and indoor farming can be a good solution for a local supply of many crops. Chris has been a great colleague and mentor and helped me out when I was getting started in the industry, so super excited to have him on today. And we'll just jump right in. Thanks for joining us, Chris. So one of the things we want to talk about today is uh, what questions do we have that still need resolving in the indoor ag space? Um, what are some things we're still wondering, some things maybe we still want to see proven, things like that? Any thoughts, Chris? Yeah, some of the questions that I really would like to understand is they're really based around the economics of greenhouse versus indoor vertical farm production. Um, right. We hear a lot from Japan about you know resource use, resource use efficiencies. Mm-hmm. We hear a lot about different yields, and then we see a lot of press releases about some extreme improvements by moving into um, a vertical farm scenario, some very large increases in efficiency, production, and also water savings. Right. And it'd be very interesting to see how, or kind of figure out how those figures are being calculated. Right. I think there was a... Um... There was a manufacturing guru who said something like, I don't trust any numbers that I, I don't trust any numbers that I haven't cooked myself. So, uh, <laughs> I like that. <laughs> yeah. There's always an element of that. Yeah. So like anything's in, <laughs> yeah, anything's in particular, um, that you've run into, or maybe just kind of some of your experiences working in, in indoor ag as well. You know, can we elaborate yeah. on some of those questions or. Yeah. So my, my experience is that, you know, oftentimes in indoor ag, we spend a lot of time talking about the system, right? We spend a lot of time talking about unique production systems or unique lighting recipes right. or unique um, unique ideas and thoughts. And we don't spend as much time talking about the most important um, the most important piece of equipment or most important not piece of equipment, but the most important component of the indoor farm, which is actually the plant. Right. And today, as it stands, we are using seed varieties that for the most part were bred for outdoor growing conditions. Right. In some cases, we're using seed varieties that were bred for greenhouses. Yeah. Um, but there's not that many varieties that have been bred for, bred for greenhouse use. Mm-hmm. So as we move forward, you know, how much energy should we be focusing on the production system versus how much energy should we be fo- focusing on the variety of crops we're producing? Because mm-hmm. if we take any lessons from traditional agriculture, is that as we moved to new climates or as we moved around the world to try to produce certain crops in, in different climates around the world, we found that breeding programs led to successful farms 
as they move from one climate to the other. Right, yeah. Um, I actually worked for the University of Florida blueberry breeding program um, for a couple years as a postdoc. And, and something that was really important there was, I mean, we had blueberries from up north that tasted good, and we had, but they couldn't survive in Florida. So we had to crossbreed them for a couple of decades with native varieties that tasted terrible before we could even have a farm industry. And now blueberries in Florida are a pretty significant sector, but it never would have been there without a breeding program. So, And you just, and you just said, said something that I think is also an extremely interesting question is what length of time is it going to take us to come up with these new varieties? You said yeah. a couple of decades, I believe. And are we looking at a couple of, you know, are we looking at something that needs to last a couple of de- decades or has some of the improvements in technologies we've seen for breeding, is, are those improvements going to allow us to shorten that cycle? Right, yeah. Um, that's that's a really good question. I think uh, the Florida case was really kind of stretched out by the fact that, number one, it's blueberries, so they, they take a while to mature. Fortunately, we were able to get the breeding cycle down to about 18 months just because it's warm down there. Um, but also because we had to really breed things that were not very similar and, and try to get something useful out of them. So hopefully it won't take that long for things like lettuce and, um, you know, leafy greens like that. They have a shorter cycle and we're, tr- there's less movement we're trying to get in there. You know, there's, there's not as much change. Um, hopefully that'll help. Well, I think that'll help. But the one thing I think, um, I've also been considering is critical mass. Yeah. You know, when probably there were enough blueberry farmers that would buy plenty of new varieties once they come, they probably came through tissue culture. But if we're looking at a seed company that's investing money, right? Uh, how many acres, you know, how many acres of vertical farms need to exist right. before a seed company is going to find value in that segment? Right. That's a good question. Um, as a as someone who's done plant breeding uh, before, something that I think is really interesting about indoor farms is. Um, you know, we would always say in the breeding program, the the plants that just came from our most recent crossing year, you know, like, you know, 18 months back that were the first crop starting to make berries or the youngest one we had making berries, those are always the ones that tasted best. Um, was I mean, they, they'd had a year to make berries and then we eliminated the ones that don't taste good. And then after that, then you start eliminating based on disease resistance, you know, like resistance to frost, that kind of thing. So that, that first elimination that's strictly just for flavor um, those are always the best berries. And then once we had to start weeding out the ones that just didn't handle well in the field, then it kind of, you know, mellowed out a little bit in terms of flavor improvement. Um, so a cool thing about indoor ag is because we can control the environment. Um, and I don't want to say like control the environment, but we can, uh, avoid stressing the plant unduly with bad climate situations. Right. Yeah. Um, that actually really opens up what we can do in terms of flavor. We can have plants that are actually focusing on flavor instead of not getting moldy. Right. Um, yep. So as a breeder, I think that's pretty exciting. Well, and then if you compound that with the fact that many of the indoor farms are really targeting the local market, mm-hmm. um, there should also, I mean, wouldn't you think there would be additional advantages by not having to possibly breed for shelf life either, correct? Right, yeah. I mean, you'd have to a little bit, but not as much. Um, yeah. Yeah, and the, the thing that made the breeding for the for the Florida program take so long, we, we do a cross, and it would take 10 or 12 years before we could release something. And a lot of that time was not the flavor evaluations, but that was, again, the disease and climate resistance evaluations that took years. Um, so when you take that out of the equation, then you can really just focus on making something that is pleasant to eat, which is nice. Yeah, and then and I think the final question, as we, as we started this conversation off, is talking about questions. I think the final thing for me is, you know, how long will it be before we start to look at things other than leafy greens and culinary herbs? 
Right. Um, you know, those, those are, I understand why those are the crops that we're looking at today. And that makes total sense to me. Yeah. But what, what's next? You know, what, what um, crops would be next that might allow us to really expand the audience that we're targeting with indoor crops? Yeah, I really want to see berries happen, but there's a, there's some hurdles there. Yeah, there are definitely some hurdles there. Berries in a greenhouse are hard enough, right. <laughs> let alone berries without sunlight. Right. Yeah. So I've, I've seen some metrics out of Belgium which really make me question um, whether or not there's even any varieties that would be doable in an indoor farm today. Really? How so? Uh, cost of ener- energy, right? Yeah. Now mm-hmm. we're moving. Now we're moving away from. Uh, now we're moving away from a crop where we're just producing biomass, leafy, mm-hmm. leafy green material, and now we need that increased energy from the from our light source. We need that increased energy to set enough fruit per square foot or per square meter to right. get a harvest. You know, to reach yields that would make a company profitable. Right. And what I've seen is that the the, the light intensity is required. Mm-hmm. right now would really drive up both the capital investment as well as the operational cost of running that farm. Right. Because we would increase the light intensities, which would drive up CapEx. Right. We would increase the light intensities, which would drive up our, our um, electrical costs or, or, you know, our energy costs. Yeah. And then we would have a, uh, another thing associated with that. We would probably increase our utility costs by driving up our HVAC demand. Mm-hmm. So, those three dominoes would all fall as <laughs> yeah. we try to target higher light levels. Right, yeah. Looking at berries, and it, again, this may be a holdover from my experience with the blueberry breeding program, um, but we had to kind of move them from the field, you know, into a cooler to stimulate, um, uh, you know, simulate that vernalization, uh, give them yep. their, their chilling hours, and then and then move them manually back into the greenhouse. So it, it's probably... It, I may be warped a little bit by that experience, but for me, indoor farming for berries kind of looks like you have them in a field until it's time to, you know, cue them into flowering. Then you stick them in a chiller. Then you put them in your, your flowering and fruiting room. Um, could be a way for that to work. Um, but then you're getting yourself into a lot of materials handling, which, you know, <laughs> that's a whole specialty in and of itself is just how to move stuff around and, and make that effective. So, um, I don't know. Interesting questions there. Yeah. Rad. Um, let's see. Anything else we want to cover here? Not on, not on the question parts. Um, at least not that I can think of. Right. So have, <laughs> um, something I've been having a lot of questions about is how people do hiring and training and retention. Um, this is kind of a, a draw my bang on a lot. But I see a lot of folks trying to hire like top flight, brilliant expert growers for like forty thousand dollars in a in a concentrated urban area, and um, you know, for one thing, you wonder what they're smoking, and, and it's it's one thing to be able to claim I'm I'm new to an area, uh, I'm new to this sector, and I just don't really know what normal looks like. But it's another one entirely when you're looking at a Silicon Valley culture where, you know, in the universe that they're in, you're either a coder or you're a robot. And they're thinking, well, they're not coders, so they're robots. And they're thinking I'm going to pay them appropriately. And that, to me, is a big, huge red flag. Any thoughts there? Yeah, I I mean, I think I might be looking at labor a little bit differently than you. Um, And and the reason is, is I don't see many people finding, well, maybe it's terminologies. 
I don't yeah. see many people finding growers for 40k a year anymore. Yeah. Um, we've had we've had a couple of things that have really changed our access to labor in this space. Yeah. Uh, one of those has been the state by state regulation of cannabis mm-hmm. or medical mar- marijuana. Right. As that has happened, that has attracted a lot of that labor pool that we once had access to. Mm-hmm. Um, I know I have friends that were growing tomatoes three years ago that are now growing, you know, growing tomatoes in greenhouses three years ago. Right. They're now um, cannabis growers. Right. And the nice part about their move, at least for them, the nice part about their move is that from a from a happiness standpoint, mm-hmm. the tomato farms were driving these guys to work seven hours or seven days a week, ten to twelve hours a day. Right. As they as they moved over to these alternative crops, mm-hmm. what they found is they have a shorter working day. Yeah. Uh, often only working five days a week. Yeah. And they're being comp- and they're being compensated more. Yeah. So I think that we we're gonna run it. labor in general, whether we're talking indoor, whether we're talking greenhouse or field production. I think we've got some really difficult questions to answer as we go forward. Yeah. Um, they start. In my opinion, it starts with immigration and immigration laws. Mm-hmm. Um, we're going to have fewer and fewer people doing, or we're going to have fewer and fewer people available to do some work that historically not a lot of people have wanted. Yeah. Um, now we and, and we don't see if we go to our land grant universities, we don't see a ton of kids coming into our horticulture and agricultural growing programs. Mm-hmm. We see a lot of guys going or guys and gals going into research. Yeah, a lot of landscaping. Say that again. Oh, yeah. A lot of people going into landscaping and, and, yeah. Yeah. They're going into landscaping for a while. Golf course superintendents were hot. Mm-hmm. Uh, golf course, you know, management programs were hot. You, now you see some people going into general agriculture, but they're looking at it from a business perspective, less from a production or growing perspective. Right. So we have this shrinking pool of people to choose from. Yeah. And as we move into, as we move into a highly managed controlled environment facility to produce crops yeah. now we know now we're going to need to look for a a head grower a production manager mm-hmm. that has a complete new set of skills yeah. that only a couple of universities in the country have access to teach right and or have the equipment needed to teach these programs and then they only have you know 15 to 20 or 30 kids in those programs to start with so we're now looking at all these businesses growing yeah. and you know, a, a, a group of growers that may number 20 to 25 a year with no experience mm-hmm. and all the other growers fighting for those, those people with experience. Yeah. So it, to me, it's a, it's a, it's going to be very interesting, interesting to watch this over the next five to 10 years. Right. And I, I think that's a huge argument for there needs to be really good in-house training, which means, you know, they need to hire, you know, at least one really good experienced master grower, which, you know, again, are in short quantity. But these companies need to be prepared to do some really intensive in-house training. You can't just pick folks up off the street and expect that to work, right? Um, yeah. And yeah. then we kind of have to train the trainers and, and, you know, professors like Professor Kubota from Ohio State University or, yeah. you know, the University of Arizona. Uh, they're, they're short courses. I guess they're, what's the terminology? They're industry tra- um they're non-traditional industry students. Right. <laughs> the people coming back, maybe, what is it? I think it's a non-degree program. Yeah. I think those non-degree programs, I, I would hope we see an, an increase in the amount of people that are wanting to participate yeah. because otherwise we're going to have people training 
people and the trainers aren't going to know what they're training for. Yep. Yeah. So we won't ever really succeed. Yeah. And, and something I kind of see is, you know, companies who get into indoor ag are really planning on like rapid explosive growth because that's normal in the tech industry. Um, not maybe really realizing what the human resources there are up against. I mean, you, you not only do you have to grow the plants, but in a lot of ways you have to grow your people as well. Um, yeah. And that takes time. Yep. I agree completely. Awesome. Yeah. So that's fun. And I mean, you, you also get into some of the issues where, you know, it's, uh, indoor farming is kind of on this weird border between it's agriculture and it's also kind of green manufacturing. In a lot of ways, it kind of operates like a manufacturing setup. Um, and so you need a lot of skills from there. Like it, the more complicated your equipment is, the more um, the more dependent you are on people who can fix it, right? So you need not just trade labor, but like really intensive, I can troubleshoot and, and diagnose and fix and prevent trade labor, right? Um, well, yeah. And you bring up an interesting thing, because if we look at what's happening in the indoor ad space for the United States, I, I don't want to comment for other parts of the world because this does change. Right. But if we look at the indoor ad space in the United States, one of the things that we're seeing is we've got, you know, five or six companies that are doing, you know, that have managed to raise quite a bit of capital. Mm -hmm. uh, most of them are venture capital backed. Yeah. And in each one of these scenarios, they're using a different production system. Yeah. So now we have people that, how well are they going to be cross-trained, right? Yeah. If, if everybody has different equipment, you know, how well can other companies build to support and service that equipment? Um, if we don't, you know, I think if we, again, look at other parts of controlled environment agriculture as case studies, yeah. you know, one of the things that allows the Dutch industry to do so good at greenhouses that produce vine crops mm -hmm. is that in essence, the greenhouses are all very similar. They now, are. They, yeah. do mo they modify them slightly. And if you know the differences between the equipment or the differences, but you know, the, the, the slight differences that you have between suppliers, mm -hmm. you can see them. But the differences are so slight that it's fairly easy for a grower or uh, a service company to move from one facility to the other and offer a high value. Right, yeah. And I think that gets to something really key that we're seeing in the U.S. indoor ag market is, you know, in, in Holland, uh, your business model is really based on what you produce. It's, per, you know, it's based on a product and sales. Whereas in the U.S., with a lot of these venture-backed, they're basically tech companies that happen to be in food, Right. So their yeah. business model is more selling the equipment. So they need to make sure that their equipment is not like everybody else's. Um, and the focus can sometimes be more on that than is it productive? And, and are you going to be able to make sales? That is a really good question. And I'm not going to go anywhere near the answer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll be on record as the one for that. I don't know. Um <laughs> That's just a, that's a thing that's in your life really heavily as a crop consultant, which I've been doing for quite some time, um, is you're kind of there to help the grower figure out the difference between all these different kinds of equipment. And in any field of ag, there's, there's some tools that are more relevant to what they're doing and there's some tools that are less relevant. So that's, um, that's always kind of been where I come from when working with a grower is like, okay, but what does this equipment really do? Um, so that, that's always been a fun discussion. And, I've, and I'm looking at it very differently. I know part of my background is that I have been, you know, business partners with my brother in a production facility, not for food, food crops, but for ornamentals. Right. Um, I have been, you know, I was raised, um, my summer job, I guess you could say, was working with my grandparents on a fruit farm while I was young. Yeah. And I guess part of me is still 
really tied to traditional agriculture. And one of the things that's beat in your head constantly (laughs) is managing cost of goods, right? Bringing costs down. Mm -hmm. And now that I'm on the supply side and now that I work with, you know, technologies, one of the things I constantly look at is the, one of the things that usually works to bring costs down is to increase the amount of product that's being sold. Mm -hmm. And so if I'm a supplier, and I'm, I'm, I'm not able to increase the amount of units I put into the field. I never really good, do a good job of bringing the, the, the price down. Yeah. And so I, I think, I don't believe that consumers are going to pay more for product that is grown indoors. Um, I think consumers will pay good money for product that is consistent, mm-hmm. product that is safe, and mm-hmm. product that is locally grown. And possibly some other attributes. Right. I don't really think they care about the equipment that's being used. Yeah. And so one of the things that we'll see, I think, that needs to happen is a real focus on the on the, the, the cost of producing this product so that these farms can be economically viable. And yeah. that's one thing that I really do look forward to seeing how it plays out. I, I fully admit that sometimes I have too much of a traditional agriculture mindset. <laughs> it's not all right. Um, <laughs> and, and I'm interested to see how it plays out and see what additional values these farms can, can present to the consumers and the consumers will be willing to buy. Right, yeah. And I think in, in some ways that's what really gets me excited about berries and, and hopefully making that happen is, I mean, lettuce and basil in the field versus indoors, they're they're pretty equivalent. Um, so you're, you're really looking at you have to make sure that you can produce at that same price. Whereas with berries, you actually have a chance of being able to differentiate um, based on flavor, because a lot of field-grown berries are just kind of sour and they're they're not that good. Um, your field-grown berries will tend to get botrytis, you know, like um, you know that gray mold that just kind of like turns into a nest in the package after a couple of days. Um, yeah, that comes from uh, you know obviously when the flower gets wet. Um, so, so that comes from like way back in the flowering stage. The spore will get in there and just kind of chill out in the berry until it gets ripe. Um, and then it's, it's kind of been growing there quietly the entire time. And then once it gets ripe, it takes over and that's why it does it so quickly. Um, it's always in that berry, but if you can keep those flowers dry during the flowering period, then you don't have that. Um, so there's a real opportunity to make it so that berries will last more than two days once you bring them home, which can be really valuable to consumers and also just taste better. Yeah. So there's an actual chance to differentiate and make a better product that's clearly indoors and clearly better. So that's kind of exciting to me. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think, and I think as we can expand those products that we look at um, to be produced locally, so we can decrease the transit time from farm to table. Yeah. Um, those those products that we can look at, where we can find real, you know, Im- improvements in shelf life to me is is something that's really key. Um, I think improvements in flavor is can can be found. I know, um, Port Americas, we have a demonstration greenhouse, yeah. and my wife, I think, was a perfect example of exposing her to different flavors. So, you know, this story, she's born and raised in the Midwest. And you, you know, many of us growing up looked at salad as iceberg lettuce. Yeah. Right. Or we looked at salad as prepackaged lettuce that we got at the grocery store. Yeah. But as we've been running trials at our demonstration greenhouse, we've been looking at, you know, spicy arugulas and blends. And all of a sudden you get these right out of the system, right off the farm. When they're super fresh and the flavors are really intense, kind of changes your definition of what a salad should taste like. Right, yeah. And I think that we have the opportunity to do that by introducing new flavors that possibly were never introduced before because they didn't travel well. They didn't pack well. 
you know, for whatever reason, they never made it to the grocery shelf. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that was kind of a constant sorrow in the in the berry breeding program was we we get these crosses that had like this really amazing, like rich, like blackberry jam, like packed flavor. And then they wouldn't make it because their field resistance wasn't great. Um, yep. And then things, we had some with just like the most just boring kind of insipid, barely their flavor, but they performed really well in the field. And actually when, when we did our taste panels, people liked the really bland ones and we were like, okay, man, <laughs> guess we're releasing it. <laughs> Um, you, you, you sound like my uncles. It, it, it's really funny to hear because yeah, my uncles were farmers their entire life, yeah. and one of the crops that uh, one of my uncles really liked to grow was peaches. Yeah, and he and I were just it was only a couple months ago. He and I were sitting at his kitchen table talking about how bad peaches tasted today. Yeah, and he says as the varieties changed over the course of the year, people you know he feels that they've lost all their flavor. He said now they ship well. You know, they don't have, their, their yields are higher, but they just don't taste good anymore. And right. it was funny to listen to have the, almost the exact same opinions that you just stated. Yeah, and I mean, like, when you're right there, like, up close and personal with all the crosses that don't make it, you're just, like, shedded here, you know? <laughs> it's terrible. <laughs> yep. um, but it was wild because people say, like, why don't you breed for flavor? And then we get some that would actually have great flavor, and we bring them to the taste panel, and people will be like, ah, I like the bland ones. It was the craziest thing. Um, yeah. That was weird. Yeah. Um, Let's see. But yeah, um, yeah, flavors, flavors, a whole thing. Um, we, we actually had a couple berries that had like a cadaverine flavor to them. They were producing like scatol and putrescine. So those never made it to the cross, obviously. So they had like corpse flavors. It was great. Um, wow. Yeah, those didn't make it past the cut. <laughs> You're like passing around. Try this. Oh, that's terrible. <laughs> those are those things. See, and I think that there's a unique market for those things. You know, I wonder, um, out of curiosity, how many years ago was it that you were doing that work? Oh, gosh. That would have been like 2011 through 2014, so not too long back. Not too long ago. It it would be interesting if, you know, during during that process, it would be interesting if some of those flavors were taken to a a major metropolitan area and put in or at high-end cuisine and see Mm -hmm. if... You know, what would it take to get small niche farms with these really unique flavors? Right. Is there a way to make that profitable? Because I guarantee that, you know, there's going to be somebody that's wanting to pay for that experience. Now, right. I know economically for the farmer to make that work, it, it's going to come at a high price, that experience is just to be able to produce those very unique flavors. But yeah. it's, I'm, I've always been curious as to what it would take to be able to make those economically feasible right and that doesn't you know who knows what that means we could be talking about a ten dollar berry yeah but at the same point in time if it tastes like corpses maybe it's worth it maybe there's a maybe there's people that are willing (laughs) to pay for those experiences right yeah and i've wondered that myself like uf obviously is set up for like just you know mass releases and everything um but there were some cultivars that i you know that really seemed like they even if they weren't a great fit for big mass farming because their disease resistance wasn't great um like a small farm that had a greenhouse or something could do pretty well with um like there's this one i called it smash and grab um we had to do a lot of yield trials and just like pick the bush clean and then get a weight um and some bushes it took forever because they had like one by one berries you had to get each one individually and this cultivar had just like big clusters of berries that all ripen at the same time and they tasted phenomenal and i was like heaven help me if this one doesn't make it past <laughs> the hurdle and get released i don't know what i'm gonna do i love this thing um 
But yeah, like there's even if that one didn't make it to mass market, I think like, you know, indoors or people in a greenhouse or just a backyard situation, it could be a great fit. Right, right. And who even knows what the, the legal thing like that was. Um, that program was actually the number two IP revenue generator for the University of Florida. So they don't take releases very casually. It, it was a big process. Right, Yeah. right. In fact, I think uh, the blueberry growers at Florida, in Florida were getting kind of mad because the program was built to help them. And our varieties were so popular that a lot of folks in Mexico were buying them and starting to undercut Florida growers. And they, it was a whole thing. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that, I've seen that happen in other programs as well. Right. And we'd always say something like, well, do you want to pay more taxes to support the program and we can stop doing that? And they would always say no. So, I mean, there's that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Let's see. Um, yeah, that's berries. Any other thoughts? We're kind of winding up on our half hour time. Yeah, no, I think I think this has been a very interesting conversation. Yeah. Um, and, and I, and I, you know, like we started off with, I think the, I think at this stage in the development of indoor ag, um, for most of us, there's still a lot of questions. Yeah. But I think that that's healthy, right? I think that we're still very, especially in when we talk about agricultural timelines, yeah. I think we're still, as for the United States, we're still very young in our research and development within this space. Mm-hmm. Um, other countries have obviously been at this a little bit longer than we have. Yeah. Um, but, you know, we are going to go through some learning curves, and I think it's good that we're asking the right questions. Well, uh, you know, thanks for your thoughts. I appreciate your time, and, uh, you know, happy Friday. Thank you very much. Have a great weekend. <laughs> thanks, you too. Enjoy. Thanks, Chris, for joining us today. A good look at the inner workings and where we're going with indoor farming and horticulture in the U.S. today in general. Working as he does with at least two rather significant companies, he's got a lot going on, so just really appreciate taking the time. Join us next time on Farm to Tabor. We're going to talk about aquaculture, fish farming across the ages, how it got weird with salmon pens, and what we're doing to fix it. Catch you next time. Special thanks to Revolutionary Coworking in Fayetteville, North Carolina for recording space and to Lauren Harris for audio production. 